Well, good morning, beloved. Um, If you're visiting with us, um, I would like to welcome you all on behalf of we all. So uh, we are more than delighted to have you with us. Uh, We now move into the uh, portion of our worship service that is the exposition of God's word. This is our time to study the word of God. His truth comes down to us. So if you would, open your Bibles to Matthew's gospel in the seventh chapter. If you need a Bible, uh, we have some in the back by the door here. And if you raise your hand, we'll bring you a Bible. Here's one right here. Matthew chapter seven. Now, we've been studying for a number of months the Sermon on the Mount. And... That is chapter 5, 6, and 7. And now we have entered in, as of last week, into this, what is known as the closing section of this glorious sermon. This morning, our attention will be on verses 7 through 12. And it flows in context to those first five verses that we studied last week, as well as the sermon as a whole. Um, And I'll expound on that in in just a bit. So if you would, let's look together at the living word of God, beginning in verse 7, which reads, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Father, your word is truth. And as you prayed, Lord Jesus, in that high priestly prayer, John 17, before you departed from this earth to the right hand of your Father, you prayed, Father, sanctify them in the truth, for your word is truth. Lord, grant us grace this morning, we pray, to have ears to hear and hearts to both receive and retain the truth therein. And may you be glorified through our lives as we learn to apply the truths before us this morning to our lives as a redeemed people, that the name of Jesus Christ might be highly exalted in all things for your glory. May your people be edified this morning, and may I have the grace and the power to declare this truth not in of myself, by the way of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we're in the closing section of the Sermon on the Mount, where the Lord graciously provides particular instruction. And the instruction in the Sermon on the Mount is for those that are his kingdom people. Now, as I've said in weeks past, there's probably no other portion of Scripture more cited by the unbelieving world than the Sermon on the Mount. But the Sermon on the Mount, as is all the rest of Scripture, to be applied to those who are believers in Christ, to those who've been redeemed, to those who have been born again from above. 
because we're the only ones by God's grace that can carry out the truths of Scripture. So the Sermon on the Mount, once again, is not a prescription in how to get to heaven, but rather is a description of those who've been gifted with heaven through Jesus Christ alone. Now, it's probably safe to say, beloved, that his original audience is likely very quiet and actually stunned at this point in his sermon. These commanding words of Jesus Christ are cutting to the core of their being. Everything that he he has proclaimed to his audience has created, no doubt, a deafening silence. I mean, this is a sermon that was preached outdoors, and I'm sure on this day you could have heard pins drop. Verse 28, for instance, it says, when he said all these things, the crowds were astonished. (laughs) Which is to say, uh, the meaning of this word is to drive one out of his senses by way of sudden shock. Through this sermon, their lives have been exposed for what they really were. Nothing but an outwardly pious people, outwardly religious, moral reformers. And within this very self-righteous community, uh, the people's hearts here were being graciously torn by the penetrating words of the king of kings. I mean, they never heard anything like this. But Jesus was challenging every aspect of this outwardly moral, pietistic religiosity that gripped these people as they were being misled by the scribes and the Pharisees of their day. So Jesus demands here a righteousness, if you recall, that exceeds that of the most apparent righteous people of the day, and that is the scribes and the Pharisees. As he said in chapter 5, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven, which tells us that there's a righteousness that must be acquired by us, which is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's the imputed righteousness of Christ. For Christ came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And it's his righteousness that is granted to the believer by faith that enables him a righteous position. That's why salvation comes through Christ and Christ alone. Because it's only by his righteousness that one will enter into the kingdom. No one enters in self-righteously. Now, the main point this morning is this, beloved. Think about this. He wants us to storm heaven to obtain more relational grace to carry out the very things he's commanding in this sermon. Ask, seek, knock. Now, if you recall, Christ has just been instructing these people in verses 1 through 5 not to judge hypercritically. But yet he goes on to say, nevertheless, you must judge, but you must judge rightly. You must judge correctly. After all, how do you discern who the dogs and hogs are of chapter 6, or or verse 6 rather, unless you make a right and proper judgment? So in other words, we need discernment here. How to judge correctly and not hypercritically. Now, prior to that in the sermon, Jesus was teaching about seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that we're not to allow anxieties to control us over what we eat, what we drink, and what we wear, that our treasure should be laid up in the heavens rather than here on earth, which is temporal, 
that our motivation behind our devotion for God, Jesus taught in chapter 6, is to please our Father who sees in secret and not for the sake of pleasing men. Because whatever we ascribe worth to, if we ascribe worth to something, that, beloved, is what worship is. So if I ascribe worth to that which is temporal, and it takes the place of God, that's called idolatry. So Jesus lays down all of this groundwork for uh, that which describes someone who is saved. He taught us to love our enemies. He taught us to pray for those who persecute us. He taught us against retaliation. He taught against making rash vows. He taught against lust of the heart and murderous thoughts. So it was this teaching that you could hear pins drop in the hearts of the people. So the question would naturally be this. How? How do I live like this? Especially when I'm so often blind to my own thoughts and I'm the guy that has the log sticking out of my eye looking at the speck in my brother's eye. How do I do this? Now, not unlike this original audience, beloved, this teaching ought to drive one to his or her knees. And that is precisely where the Lord Jesus takes us in verses 7 through 11. Now, some interpret this portion of the sermon as a kind of an additional statement or an add-on to the Lord's Prayer of chapter 6 which is known as the Lord's Prayer. But this, however, beloved, is not some postscript on how to pray more effectively, but rather is an appeal. It is an appeal of the people of God, those for whom he would provide atonement and forgiveness and eternal life, who will by grace continue to follow him. And then it's appeal that cries out and says, Lord, the description of a believer as defined in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, I can't do this. Exactly, you can't. Not without him. We need his power. We need his grace. Not only that saves, but that grace that sustains us. So he provides for us here practical, applicable truths for our own lives as we dwell here and await his glorious return. And notice point number one this morning is the plea. Point number two is the promise. And point number three, which we'll look at briefly, is the practice. Notice the plea. This is for those who have ears to hear. Where hearing, they they realize with absolute certainty their failure to live like this. Now, if you remember at the beginning of the sermon, the first words of Jesus are this. Blessed are those who are what? Pour in. Spirit, theirs is the kingdom. In other words, those who realize that they have nothing in and of themselves that can save them, they are not morally right enough. You can be as right-wing conservative as you want and be an American citizen. That will not get you into heaven, just in case you don't know. It is grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, in his atoning work on that cross that provides the avenue of entry into the kingdom. It's poor in spirit. And then those that are poor in spirit continue to grow in grace and knowledge of this king that preaches this most glorious sermon. And I want you to notice first, he simply says, 
to answer your question, which we would normally ask, how do I live like this? How do I judge rightly? How do I not judge critically? Ask. (laughs) Ask. Now, this asking is like that of a beggar. You're requesting power. You're requesting direction over these matters. It is word, it's a word that is used for a beggar requesting alms. That's what poor in spirit is in verse 3 of chapter 5. Blessed are those who are poor to have shame and to cover their face and reach out their hand as a beggar to receive. You see, beloved, any Christian who is not desperately needy should probably question their Christianity. Because everything that we have comes from him. Everything that sustains us on any given day comes from him. This is also a word that is used for someone who is pleading their case before a judge. And the Lord Jesus tells us here to ask, to beg, and to plead. This isn't an appeal that might be addressed from an inferior to a superior person in society designed to remind us, beloved, of the humility that we ought to have and the consciousness of our own needs that we ought to have as we approach the Lord in prayer. You remember the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18? The scripture says that two men go in the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a despised and hated tax collector. Tax collector, sinner of sinners despised people of Jesus' day. If, if you remember, it's interesting that the Pharisee goes into the temple to pray and he does not ask God for a thing. He just tells God a lot of things. He talks about his morality, the things he does and the things he does not do. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector over here. I fast this many times a week. I give a tenth of all that I have. I do this and I do this and I don't do this. I'm a moral reformist. I'm a right-wing conservative and I live in America and I live in the suburbs. Not good enough. You see, the Pharisee was not conscious of needing anything because he was a moralist. And so he spends his time telling God what he does, how good he is. In comparison to the publican, the tax collector, the sinner who goes into the temple and pleads with God for mercy. God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. He couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. Who went away justified that day, beloved? The tax collector went away declared free of all blame. And so the Lord instructs us here to ask teaching us what the demeanor of our heart ought to be. And that is humble and forever conscious of our desperate need that only he can provide. Now, the the people in attendance on this hilltop, on this day, were no doubt, beloved, being challenged to think about their own self-righteous community. This is what they were part of. This is what they had grown up in. This is what the Pharisees taught. This is what the scribes taught. So the thought of becoming like a desperate beggar in connection with spiritual matters for many of, this, of these people was like great liberation of dropping off a bunch of baggage once and for all and forever. True freedom that I can receive from God. 
instead of trying to work my way into his favor with self-righteous deeds. You know, it's hard in human pride to stand and say, I have deep problems and my heart is not what it appears to be. Amen? It fights. I mean, human pride fights against that. So Jesus here reiterates once again that that is where true freedom and spirituality begins. To be able to live a life like this, it is, uh, it be, it, it's the place of utter dependence. Laying prostrate before God. Asking, seeking, knocking, pleading. He's what we need. He is our source. And may we be ever dependent upon him. Just ask, Jesus says, to have heavenly discernment. Just ask to be able to persevere to live for God's glory. You familiar with the book of James? Yeah? And in the book of James, we read of a people who, as a result of their obedience and devotion to Jesus Christ, were being persecuted by the world. And they had become confused over the matter. And in James, what you're witnessing is a life of believers who many months prior to the time of the letter had come to faith in Jesus Christ. So the novelty or the newness of Christianity had worn off, if you will. Real life was setting in, real opposition, real persecution. And life and devotion was becoming very challenging in this daily grind. They were being tried. They were being tempted. You know, today... For many people, when the novelty of Christianity or a new church wears off, people will leave a church as soon as they face opposition of some sort. It's very unfortunate. But here in the midst of the confusion of those in the book of James, they're given instruction on how to deal with these trials, how to deal with these temptations. And James simply cites Jesus. Listen to this, chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without what? Reproach. And it will be given him. He gives to all what? Generously. Notice. Generously means he gives far greater and above what you could ever think or begin to imagine. Generously. And notice without reproach, which means no matter how many times we approach him, he will not reproach us. But I keep seeking him for this same thing. I want to persevere in this area. I want to glorify God in this area. Well, when you do, he will not scold you. He will not rebuke you. He will not criticize you. Jesus does not want his children to hesitate in approaching him boldly. You get that? But notice James verse 6. But. Let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. That means to waver between trusting God and trusting the world. Trusting God versus trusting possessions. Trusting God versus trusting myself. This is a man with a schizophrenic mind. One mind for God, one mind for the world. See, Jesus is calling Christians to boldly implore the Heavenly Father for this. More grace. Did you get that? 
more grace. And the Lord Jesus, he designs here in, within this passage an encouragement for us to boldly seek God over these matters. The call to persevere, to pursue him. Now, all of these words here, ask, seek, and knock, they all uh, point in the same direction. And they're all imperatives, which means they're commands for the believer. We're commanded to ask, to plead like this. And this shows us the privilege and responsibility of prayer for our spiritual needs. To be what he calls us to be. Along with the assurance of those who pray that they will be heard. Do you know that God hears you when you pray? If you're in Christ, that he hears you? That you can boldly access the throne of what? Grace, because of our mediator, Jesus Christ. He mediates on our behalf. Praying in Jesus' name is just not throwing a, it's like a, you know, a special uh, little mantra or something we throw on the end of a prayer. Oh, I forgot to pray in Jesus' name. No, we come to God in the name of Christ, his son, who purchased us. Therefore, only people who are in Christ are heard by God. Because they're the only ones who have a relationship with him. All roads don't lead to God? No. Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I have come, Jesus said, not to be served, but to serve and to lay down my life as a ransom for many. He became a man. That's the incarnation. That's Christmas. Christmas is that Jesus in glory stepped out of glory and lowered himself to become this, human flesh. Never ceasing, however, to be God. The God-man. That hypostatic union. God and man at the same time. Jesus, the only person who's 200% of something. Notice there's a rising force here of urgency in these prayers. We are to ask, but more than that, the second part of this trilogy instructs us to seek. This is a word that means to search or to hunt after, to rummage or to scour. This is what you do when you lose your wallet. (laughs) Right? You lose your wallet, you begin to scour, you begin to search like a madman or woman. 20 years ago, I've been married to my dear wife for 24 years, and 20 years ago, uh, the setting in her ring came loose and lost that massive diamond that I purchased for her (laughs) as a (laughs) 22-year-old five years earlier. And when she realized it was gone, she began to scour the place on her hands and knees, looking in the carpet, digging through garbage, digging through the uh, vacuum bag, I just looked at a couple who recently just lost her wedding ring and they found it in the garbage of in and out They came back to church looking for the ring after service and, we, you know, they logically thought, let's retrack our steps. And they went back to in and out and it was in the garbage. They sought, they scoured, they searched because of the value of the ring. I helped my wa- wife search and scour, scour the place for this diamond because of its value. Not its monetary value, because five years earlier I was 22 and I didn't have any money. (laughs) She realized it took me two months of my very meager salary to pay for that. So it was more sentimental than anything. 
are these spiritual matters that much of a concern for us? Jesus said we are not only to ask, but we're to seek, to search, to hunt. There's to be a clear desire here. Now, another word that captures this idea that I searched and looked for is the word quest. Quest. We've been driving a Nissan Quest for 12 years now. It means a long and challenging search. This is like the parable that Jesus told with regard to the gospel. Matthew chapter 13, verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in what? In search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that they had and bought it. The glorious cost and price of the gospel. More precious than pearls. So not only should our demeanor be humble, asking, humbly coming before the Lord, poor in spirit, but we should consider our need, that we should have a single-minded focus to seek after these things in prayer. And in order to seek like this, beloved, I have to tell you now, if you're going to seek like this, as a redeemed child of God, you're going to have to give up whatever it is you're living for that vies for the affection of our Savior. Or our emotions, rather. And our desire. So we see this ascending order of emphasis and praying for spiritual matters here, to be able to live out the very instructions of our Lord here. Ask is to humbly beg for something. Seek is a diligent pursuit. And more than that, we are called to knock. Providing even more emphasis for us here. Knock. This is the same word used for pounding, for banging on the door. This is to persevere in boldness with a desire to obtain favor. over spiritual matters. Ryan read from Luke 11 this morning. You have a family who's dead asleep in the middle of the night and his neighbor comes knocking on the door because he has unexpected guests who arrive and in that day, uh, hospitality was up here. (laughs) So he comes knocking on the door. I have unexpected guests. I need bread. And in this day, you slept in a one-room house, typically. So you slept with your wife and your kids. And you get everyone in bed. Who wants to wake a sleeping baby? Moms, all of you youngsters, do you want to wake your baby when they're sleeping? No, you do not. So he says, go away. My family's in bed. The house is locked up, brother. Go away. But his neighbor would not stop knocking. This is the kind of persistent. He pounds and he pounds until his friend finally gives up and gets up. That's the idea. This is what God wants to do for those that are his. He calls us, he orders us. This is an imperative, a command to ask, to seek, to knock. This is our responsibility as a redeemed people. To be able to do the very things he orders us to do. John Calvin said this, quote, Though he gives all things freely to us, yet in order to exercise our faith, he commands us to pray that he may grant our requests those blessings which flow from his undeserved goodness. Who deserves the goodness of God in this room? Not the guy speaking to you, that's for sure. 
but he wants to bless those he has purchased. So Jesus provides for us this word picture describing this attitude of prayer with regard to spiritual matters. To to seek divine counsel for wisdom, for strength, to be able to rightly discern. Because we're an ever needy people. This reveals persistence in what's in view here. Not idle disengagement. Did you notice that? This is not a let go and let God type of thing. Right? In our sanctification, he said, ask, seek, knock, and it will be given unto you. An ongoing pursuit in the Christian life. You know what another ongoing pursuit is in our Christian lives? The fight against sin. Did you know that? It will never end until he returns. You will constantly be fighting against sin. You'll constantly be fighting against the desire to sin. And every time we sin, it means that we don't trust the word of God. Oh, you of little what, Jesus said? Little faith. Now, this is very important to note in light of the fact that the Lord's original audience was made up of many practiced moralists. And many times we forget to pursue God for more grace and we think if we just clean this up and that up, we'll find favor. But these people were professional behaviorists. They were orthodox liturgists. They knew what to say. They knew how to act. But practicing this or reciting that will not accomplish what Jesus is getting at here. He says, come to me, boldly ask, seek, knock, and it will be provided for you. Do we do this? Don't answer. Do we do this? Do we believe this? We fight against sin. We, we read the Sermon on the Mount and go, I want to pull my hair out. I can't live like this. No, you can't, not on your own. That's the whole point. He wants to enable you to do this. And he says, ask, seek, and knock. You see, when we rightly understand the gospel of grace, we realize God's perfect law, that it costs Jesus his very life so that you might live. Milton Vincent said this, quote, as I perpetually feast on Christ and all of his blessings found in the gospel, I find that my hunger for sin diminishes and the lies of lust simply lose their appeal. Hence, to the degree that I am full, I am what? Free. Free. So let me ask you a question. Do you ask, do you seek, do you knock in prayer with the same sense of need, with the same sense of concern over spiritual matters as you do over material desire? We must all ask ourselves this question. Or do we approach the Lord in prayer feeling like, I I don't really need much spiritually. I'm pretty good. Are you self-satisfied over spiritual matters? But always asking to, that he would bountifully bless us materially. If so, I think we have, our, we have to reorder our thinking as the people of God. Question. When you're tired of that old besetting sin, and we all have besetting sins in our lives, do you go and purchase, you know, you know three easy steps uh, to a better life now? 
Or do you humble yourself before the Lord, coming to him in prayer, asking and seeking and pleading and begging? This is what he's telling us to do. That's the order of the day, beloved. Three easy steps. There's three easy steps to nothing. Because you'll only fail three weeks later. Seek, ask, knock. He's ready to hear. Kelvin again said, nothing is better adapted to excite us to prayer than a full conviction that we shall be heard. Yeah, you got that right. <laughs> Matthew Henry, those who, those who would be rich in grace must betake themselves to the poor trade of begging, and they shall find it a thriving trade. Be a beggar. He's your father. He's your heavenly father. He's a daddy like no daddy. He is Abba. He is Papa. He says, come to me. I will provide you all that you need to be what I call you to be. Because I've enabled you to be that. I will not command you to do something that you cannot carry out with power. I do not tell you to glorify my name and then leave you standing alone so that you can't glorify my name. We have all that we need in Christ Jesus. You are possessed. Did you know that? You're possessed with the Spirit of God. That's why a Christian can't be possessed by demons. They're already possessed. Eternally sealed. With the Holy Spirit. Some might say, I've desired to change. I've desired to change my bad habits, my actions, and I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I've prayed incessantly about this, but nothing seems to be going my way. Well, it could be, James says, that you're asking with the wrong motive. James 4.2. You covet... The covetous heart, you covet and you cannot obtain. So you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own pleasures. We get our priorities all mixed up. We start thinking like the world, so we start praying like pagans would pray. And the Lord is not going to spoil us, beloved, by giving us certain things that will hinder our spiritual growth when he knows what is truly good for us. So oftentimes, until the demeanor of our heart is right, as a forgiven people, as the desire of our hearts are right, until the diligence of our souls are right, as we approach him in prayer, he will withhold in order to bless us. That's why he says... You ask, you do not receive because you ask wrongly. May we not pray like pagans pray. So the real question is, what do we desire? Therefore, the Lord teaches us with grace and with love, ask and seek and knock. It's to simply be humble and recognize our need. Asking, sinking, asking, seeking and knocking are all present tense verbs. It's an ongoing action. And these promises, notice, the plea leads to promises. Verse 7, ask it will be given to you. We ask, notice, it's given. There's three commands, but numerous promises. He doesn't lend to you, he doesn't sell to you, but he gives to you. Ask and it will be given. His answers always meet our needs. 
Notice also another promise, verse 7, Seek and you will find. Those who seek the Lord will surely find him. Now, as a forgiven people, he came after you and found you. Amen? Romans says no one seeks after God in a salvific sense. He comes to the sinner and saves you. He provides that what's called the effectual call to draw you to himself in salvation. But once you're saved, you want to seek a deeper relationship. He says, seek, seek after, and you will find. Another promise, knock, it will be open. The door of most mercy is opened by the instrument of prayer. And then some will say this, well, if God's sovereign, why pray? You ever heard that? If God is in absolute control of all things beginning to end, why pray? Because God has ordained that blessing, especially spiritual blessing, come to his people through this instrument of relational fellowship known as prayer. May we be a praying people. This is why the Puritans used to say, when the Lord is preparing to bless his people, he sets them a praying. When you're prompted to play, it's, it pray, it's not your flesh. Did you know that? Your flesh isn't going to prompt you to play, it pray. It's the spirit of God in you who prompts you to pray. To do the will of God. And notice verse 8. Everyone who asks receives. Notice everyone who asks in faith is heard. Not apostles. Not only the apostles. Not just prayer warriors. But all who are in Christ. Everyone who asks like this. Every saint who comes believing receives. He who seeks finds. He shows his favor in prayer. Faith obtains the promise beloved. So Christ here is determined in this passage to convince us that we will never labor in vain when we labor in prayer over spiritual matters to bring more glory to his name. That's a promise. That's a promise. And don't miss this. It's all of grace. Notice, this is all of grace. He doesn't say, ask and you'll produce or pull it off yourself. After all, God helps those who help themselves, right? By the way, the Bible does not say that. I've heard people say, you know, the Bible says God helps those who help themselves. No, it doesn't. You can't help yourself. That's the point. You're in desperate need to be saved and to to remain in fellowship with him. And he provides it all. He says, ask and it will be given. Seek. And you're not going to discover it within yourself. Don't go searching for truth in here. Truth comes from outside of us. The gospel comes from outside of us, right? The truth is being proclaimed today from the pulpit. When you counsel one another, you don't give your opinion, you speak what? Truth in love. Knock and don't, and then kick the door in. He doesn't say that. Knock and it will be opened. This is relationship. So in other words, this isn't some feeble attempt at sanctifying yourself. This is the outworking of God's grace through the life of the believer. And notice, the believer pursues his master. Is there responsibility here? Is there action here? You better believe it. Because you can. And because you can, he orders you to do so. And when you do so, he fulfills the promise. For we... Ephesians 2.10 are his what? Workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the asking, the seeking, and the knocking is gracefully this paradoxical reality that is being worked out. 
He works it in. We work it out. He calls us to obey. We obey. We're enabled to obey by his grace. He works it in. We work it out. Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Could we turn the heat down to 80 instead of 100? <laughs> and now notice in verses 9 11, he, through 11, he teaches us one more thing, and that is that we must trust the heavenly Father who answers wisely and graciously. Verse 9, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask? Now, Jesus knows the hidden doubts of his children, beloved. He knows that we struggle. He knows we wonder sometimes, is it really worth it to take this matter to God in prayer? After all, last year when I was facing financial crisis and my financial world was crashing down around me, I asked God for help, and you know what? I, I faced and experienced the crash. So we go through this turmoil, and we ask, does prayer really help? Or we typically say, does it really work? Right? Let's be real. We know what it's like. He knows what it's like. But sometimes we set our hearts on things that are not best for us. Do we not? We typically do just that. And that's why we're reminded. One theologian says, does not, <clears throat> the Heavenly Father does not hear our prayer and answer them as we ask them, but he answers them as we would ask them if we were wiser. That's grace. And so we can say with Martin Lloyd-Jones, thank God he's not answered all my prayers with a yes, but he has given me what I needed even when I didn't know what I need. Praise God that he didn't give me the woman that I wanted to marry me when I was 18, 19. Praise God. Because I wouldn't have my wife today, nor would I have my two children today. Praise God. And she's not a believer, this other gal. Praise God. But, oh, I was a mess, miserable. Why can't God change her heart? Praise God he didn't. Allow that to take place with an unchanged heart. Amen? Honey? <laughs> so the Lord Jesus tells us two things when we face those doubts. The first thing, he says that we are, come to, we are to come to him as his children. You fathers, do you want your children to come to you? You want them to seek counsel from you? Do you want them going to the neighbor? No, you want them to come to you. Our God is a jealous God. When you pull up from work, do you want your kids coming out and pat, running past you to go hug the neighbor? No. This is what God wants of us. And notice here, he talks about bread and he talks about a serpent. Which of you, when your son comes to you and asks for a bread, will give him a stone? Interesting, around the Sea of Galilee, there's these flat stones that from a distance look like bread. So what man in his right mind would put these flat stones on a table next to bread and trick his kid to go take a bite out of one? And then when he busts his teeth, he laughs at him. Any fathers in here going to do that? Or what father, with regard to this serpent, a couple things could be in mind here. Number one, Jews were not to eat unclean things back in the Old Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, serpents, snakes, w w was unclean food. 
Not only would a man in his right mind trick his son to eat a stone pretending it was bread and defile him physically, he's not going to defile him spiritually and cause him to eat something that would defile him that under the old covenant was unclean. It could mean that. But it could just simply mean that a loving father is not going to trick his son with a snake that's poisonous and deadly. So if you then, verse 11, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give you good things to those who ask? So Jesus draws a comparison by contrast. Providing, notice, his assessment of human nature, that men and women are evil, not good by nature in and of themselves. They're not as bad as they could possibly be, like Hitler or whatever, but nevertheless, by nature, we are evil. And he says, by contrast, even if you being sinful have the competence and the natural affection not to play vicious tricks, malicious tricks upon your children, how much more your heavenly father who's perfect and holy and right will give you rightly when you ask. Jesus is saying, you can trust your heavenly father. He's not going to double cross you. If I open my heart to God, I know if I do that he's just going to shut me down and send me off to some third world country to be a missionary. He may, but you'll want to go. He'll change your want to. Or man, I know that if I open my heart to God and if I ask for patience, he's going to send me nothing but trouble in order to grant me the answer to my request. That is silly nonsense. It's silly. It's superstitious. We can ask God for patience, amen? One of the fruits of the Spirit. So I can trust my Heavenly Father. And many people think I can't trust my Heavenly Father because I know His modus operandi here is somewhat devious, and if I become transparent to Him, He's going to shut me down and make me look like a fool. It's not the case. It's not the case. So there's the plea. There's the promise. Notice last, lastly, verse 12, the practice. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So, so is therefore. Therefore is in context immediately to verses 9 through 11, which says, look, if your heavenly father shows such goodness to his people, reflect that goodness in the way you deal with one another. It's also in connection to verses 1 through 5, which we looked at last week. This is a general rule for letting you know how you're supposed to judge one another. Not hypercritically. Not the guy with the log sticking out of your eye going after the speck, but removing the log to lovingly approach a brother to help remove the speck. You want to judge others, or you want others to judge you the way, or you should want to judge others the way you want yourself want to be judged, amen? If there's a fault in your life, how would you want them to approach you? Do you want them to go gather a crowd and then come to you? Or go to you one-on-one? One-on-one. Directly coming to you personally, coming to you privately and temperately. This is what we want done to us. And why? Notice the Lord's rationale as we wrap up. For this is the law and the prophets. Not because it profits us in some way and that people will like us better. That's a natural way of thinking. That's a worldly way of thinking. 
Not for psychological reasons that will make us feel better, your best life now type of feeling. Not that. Or not for social reasons of reputation. No, it's more than that. For this, Jesus said, is the law and the prophets. Now, turn back to chapter 5 and notice something. When Jesus began this glorious sermon, here in chapter 7, he said, do this. This is the law and the prophets. Back in chapter 5 and verse 17, Jesus said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what, beloved? To fulfill them. The law declared this, that God's requirement for perfect righteousness was perfect obedience for which we could never fulfill. Christ came to fulfill the obedient, the judicial, the right rule and truth and law of God. He fulfilled it. The prophets declared that one would come out of heaven to uphold the law in perfect obedient righteousness and then become the sacrifice in which the punishment would be unleashed. He came to uphold the law to lay down his life. In other words, beloved, he's fulfilled the law. He's fulfilled the Sermon on the Mount for you. He's fulfilled it for you. So because you're in Christ in this abiding living relationship, he provides you the ability to reflect his goodness and his kindness in living out his commands. And he says, look, we have a relationship here. Ask me. Seek after me. Knock. I'll answer. I'll open the door. So he changes our hearts to desires our heart's desires to say, to move from saying, this is what I should be doing, right? We move from that to, this is why I do what I do. Because of Christ. This is one of the Lord's greatest and most comprehensive promises to those who are his children who belong to his kingdom, beloved. And he grants us access to the unlimited treasures that we already have in Christ. We just have to ask for him, amen? Let's ask. It's all grace. And this is how we minister alongside of one another, amen? So quite simply this morning, beloved, may we as a redeemed people be those who ask and who seek and who knock, who storm. What's the title of the message? Storming heaven for spiritual wisdom. May we be such people. Because we're coming to the table this morning. This is the gospel made visible. The broken body and the shed blood of the one who came to fulfill the law and the prophets on your behalf. So I'm going to ask the men to come forward as we bow to prepare our hearts to come to the table together for what's been accomplished in our behalf. Holy Father, we do thank you once again for the privilege of prayer to be able to talk with you, to be able to share the desires of our hearts with you. We ask that you would give us the grace to trust you, to always know that you will answer that you will answer better than we could ever answer our own requests or help us to be those who trust 
Help us to be those who run with endurance, the race set before us, to live by faith, to ask, to seek, to knock, to petition, to boldly enter the throne of grace.